This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Economic and Business History Channel on the New Books Network. My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, and I'm your host today. On the studio, we have Dr. Andrew Konove. He is Associate Professor of History at the University of Texas, San Antonio. He is PhD in History from Yale University, and his research focuses on the political, economic, and social history of urban Mexico and Spanish America in the late colonial and early national periods. The book that we will be discussing today is the first book, is his first book, Black Market Capital, Urban Politics and the Shadow Economy of Mexico City, published by University of California Press in 2008. It traces the history of Mexico City's infamous Baratillo marketplace from the 17th century. And uh, it received uh, the Social Science Book Prize from the Mexico section of the Latin American Studies Association, and was also the finalist uh, for the Business History Conference's Hagley Prize. So, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Paula. Um, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and how this book and project came about? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the idea, I guess my interest in this general topic uh, came about when I was working for a, um, a, an organization in southern Mexico, in Oaxaca, um, there was a microfinance organization. So microfinance is um, financial services to the unbanked, right? People who don't have access to uh, traditional banking. And, um, and this, I became interested in microfinance uh, when I was working uh, at a college in DC for the Federal Trade Commission. And I started reading about it and I thought this was so interesting. And I happened to have a friend that had worked at this organization. Um, and it, microfinance predominantly loans, it's loans that are as small as $10, and it's mostly to, to women entrepreneurs. Um, and, and it also provides things like insurance and savings accounts. Um, so I went, I was living in Oaxaca, and I was working at this firm, and I became very interested. I, I was already thinking about going to graduate school and doing a PhD. I kind of wanted to do something else to um, kind of see, you know, whether academia or you know, or, or a different route was what I wanted. And, and so as I was working um, at this organization, I became interested in, in thinking about the informal economy, right? Which is at this point, particularly in the mid 2000s, this was uh, microfinance was very uh, kind of hot. It's since been, you know, criticized from a number of quarters for various reasons. Um, but informal economy was um, certainly a, a topic in, uh, that still is today, but, you know, certainly at that time. And so I thought about, you know, what what is the history of the informal economy um and how are these lines drawn between what is illicit commerce 
what is seen as antisocial commerce, what is informal, which is to say, you know, there's many ways to define that, but it might be um, something that is technically illegal, but largely tolerated um, and legal, right? Or for, or regulated formal commerce. And I, I said, you know, what, what does this look like historically? And so then I, I ended up going to graduate school and, and I went to, into the archives, my first um, summer in Mexico City, and, and I was just looking at markets. I was interested in looking at markets and how, um, uh, you know, this, particularly in the earlier colonial period and the fusion of indigenous and, and Spanish economies, both in terms of economic ideas and in terms of practices. And so I was looking at markets in the archives, and, and I just came upon, upon the Baratillo, um, and which was, you know, the more I read, uh, a, a market that was both seen as antisocial as, and it was banned many times. It was seen as threatening, but it also existed for hundreds of years um, and was also tolerated despite, you know, many decrees that sought to get rid of it. And so, so it kind of combined this interest that I developed through, through work initially um, with my own academic and intellectual interest, and then a little bit of, of serendipity in that I found it in the archives. I'm the first person to find or write about the Baratio. It, it comes up um, often in passing mentions in, in other historiography, um, but I did, you know, I, I found it by, you know, on a 17th century document in the National Archives in Mexico. So it was a little bit of, of chance there too. Fascinating. So what's the period periodization of the of the baratillo where you know what are the origins of this secondhand contraband you keep saying antisocial but i just i just feel it's the most social um place yeah. uh, i've been in mexico city and i've um and i feel it's a you know it's very crowded place and um so what are the origins of it what um where can we find this yeah, that's a, that's a great point, right? It's it's obviously the the sociability of these spaces is obviously a key part of uh, of their history and of and, and of their present, right? They are incredibly social spaces. Yeah, what I mean, antisocial is sort of the way, right? That is a construction from you know by opponents of of markets like the Baratio that are like you know these are places where these are hubs of crime, right? This is it's the sort of critical end. But no, obviously the sociability that takes place there is. Um, is, is so important. Is so central to their uh, to their uh, persistence. Um, so the, the the origins are a little bit murky. Um, there's there's no document that uh, that makes it clear when the Baratio first appeared. The earliest document I found that mentioned it was from seven, uh, 1635. Um, and, you know, the, the probably the late 16th or early 17th century uh, as an origins of the Baratillo would, would sort of make sense within the history of Mexico City, which is, um, which is becoming slowly more Hispanicized in terms of the, um, in terms of the sort of infrastructure of the city, in particular the market infrastructure, only in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Um, the Baratillo, from as far as I can tell, doesn't have a clear precedent in, uh, in Nahua society, in the indigenous society of, of central Mexico preceding the Spanish arrival. Um, so it seems to be like a European 
um, tradition that the, the, the Spaniards bring to Mexico. There are other baratillos in Madrid and other cities in Spain in the late 16th, early 17th centuries. Um, and, and so when I say the sort of Hispanization of infrastructure, but the, in the 16th century, things like markets are still in indigenous hands. And Barbara Mundy has, has written about this in, in her work, right? That in many ways, it is still very much a an indigenous city. The day-to-day -day operations of the city are very much in indigenous hands and throughout much of the 16th century. Um, and in the 17th century, um, the the Mexico City Ayuntamiento, the municipal government, it gets the right from the crown to establish markets and collect rent from them in the Plaza Mayor. And so the Baratillo starting around that time sort of makes sense with what we know is going on in Mexico City at that time. And then it, it doesn't go away. Um, there are repeated attempts to, to get rid of it. Sometimes there are fleeting successes um, in those attempts to, to abolish the market and it disappears. And then it just comes right back, which is um, because the market has very limited um, sort of physical infrastructure. Um, it can be, uh, you know, much in the way that, that street markets today, right, can be kind of gone one day and then, you know, back the next. Uh, but the Baratillo sticks around. It's an institution in Mexico City that um, exists all the way up until the early 20th century and moves to the neighborhood of Tepito in the beginning of the 20th century. And then over the course of the 20th century, it sort of fuses with the neighborhood of Tepito until the point that by the middle of the 20th century, people don't really talk about a Baratillo anymore. They don't really write about a Baratillo. They just talk about Tepito. And the Baratillo just becomes synonymous with Tepito. And Tepito comes is, 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 a, is a northern neighborhood of Mexico City at the turn of the 20th century. But over the course of the 20th century, it becomes synonymous with the sort of black market neighborhood. And that is large part due to the Baratillo moving there at the beginning of the century. So in many ways, the Baratillo never really went away. Today, Tepito's main um, the the main commerce there is not in secondhand goods, as was the case with the Baratillo, though there are sections of Tepito that still do sell secondhand goods. Um, it's much more famous for fayuca, for contraband. And, and it's just sort of everything. Tepito just has everything um, that you could possibly want. So the nature of it is, has kind of changed in the last 40 years or so, 40 or 50 years. Um, but, the, but the market never really went away. It just kind of changed names and, and evolved with as Mexico's economy evolved. Yeah. Uh, so how does, how does it move? Um, and does it have to do with politics or does it have to do with, um, um, with the owners of these stands? How does it move from, from where the cathedral is, right? To, to northern to the northern part of of um, of the city. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it starts out in the Plaza Mayor, in the center of the city, right? And the, in what is today the Socolo. Um, and this is always a kind of this is where some of the friction emerges between the vendors in the Baratillo and authorities, particularly um, royal authorities. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book. I may pick up on this later is that you know municipal authorities, local authorities don't or often don't want to get rid of the baratio. Um, but royal authorities, right, they're trying to create a more regal space in the Plaza Mayor, a space that demonstrates the the power of the monarchy. Um, don't like the fact that this market is associated with thieves 
um, and um, you know all sorts of, kind of criminality. They don't like that it's there, but but it, but it stays there. Um, they try and get rid of it. There's a major riot in Mexico City in 1692 that burns the markets, that burns part of the vice regal palace, burns part of the um, the sala de ayuntamiento, the city hall, and burns some of the archives. They tr- they, they ban the baratillo, but it comes back. Um, and, and then it's not successfully removed from the Plaza Mayor until the 1790s under this um, very activist Bourbon viceroy, Rebilla Quijero II. Uh, and he moves out all of the, the food markets and the baratillo from the Plaza Mayor and sort of in an effort to, and he creates what was known as a Plaza de Armas, right? A, a, a plaza that would demonstrate um, you know, where the, the military could do demonstrations. Uh, now, at this point, New Spain is a standing army um, in the late 18th century. So, right, again, this kind of creates the space finally for the exercise, for the spectacle of, of royal power and the baratillo or the other food markets with their indigenous and mixed race vendors, right? The idea was that there was no, there was no place for them. So they, they force it to, to physically move. Um, the vendors have to do this move themselves. They have to bring to dismantle their stands and bring their wares. We don't know, you know, we don't have records that, that necessarily detail how that happened, but we know that they had to do it themselves. I mean, they find another, they find another plaza, um, another market plaza that's just sort of at the, at that point, the Western edge of, of central Mexico city of Traza, as it was known in um, a plaza that doesn't exist anymore. It was called the, the Plaza del Factor. And then it's the sort of same story at several other times where, you know, for some, um, uh, an activist government wants to change the appearance or the function of a certain part of the city. And the Baratio, those activist officials determine is incompatible with their vision. Um, so uh, it moves again in the, in the 1840s when, um, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, kind of famous Galileo of 19th century Mexico. Um, he has this kind of little acknowledged moment of like government zeal or you know, zeal for governance in the 1840s. And, and he wants um, the Baratillo gone and ultimately succeeds. And so it kind of gets pushed, you know, farther and farther to, to the edges of the city before. Um, so that makes it moves a few different times before. 1901, 1902, when it goes to Tepito, and that's, and that's where it stays. Great. Um, thank you. So I've, um, you, you talk about the shadow economy and, um, you know, how I, I've done also research in Mexico and research in Mexico and um, it's one of the most important sources for me, I found them uh, in the secondhand bookstores in, in Calle Donceles, uh, which is actually south of Tepito and, um, and north of Zócalo. And um, how, how does one study the shadow economy? You did talk about this already, but um, what, are, what are the main sources? Are there sources beyond those in the archives? I mean, what are the sources in the archives, but beyond there, what, you know, what can the historian found, find um, that is informational to kind of uh, picture this, this market? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are a couple different ways or a few different ways that we get sources. Um, one is 
the Baratillo, because of its reputation, um, it gets embroiled in a lot of controversies, right? These controversies that, you know, ultimately sometimes lead to the dislocation of the market and its vendors. Um, so that produces a paper trail with someone, some, a new viceroy or, you know, some other colonial official comes into office and they're like, what is this thing? We want it gone. Um, and, and, or, uh, you know, the Catholic church or the, the officials at the Metropolitan Cathedral in, in, in the, you know, is, is on one side of the Plaza Mayor or the Socolo, right? They, they want it gone. Um, and so these all produce sources, right? But it, it's often kind of very similar sources because it's sort of the same story. It's, you know, someone who claims that this is a hub for stolen goods. It's a place where, uh, in the colonial period, one of the complaints, right, it's of, of racial mixing, right, that all the different gustas are, are just dissolving into this tower of Babel, right? or they or Babel, where they, you know, we can't tell one person from another. So that's one type of source, but it's often, uh, it's often a very similar type of source, whether it's in the, the 17th century or in the 19th century. But one of the interesting things about the Baratillo is that on the one hand, it is it has a unique reputation. Um, it, is, it is infamous and um, in, in Mexico City. Uh, but it, uh, on the other hand, it is also a market that the local government treats in some ways as other markets. And it regulates it in the same way that it regulates other markets in terms of uh, collecting rent from the vendors there and determining, um, you know, certain uh, conditions of uh, of the the shape and size of the stalls, um, um, you know, and there are certain market regulations that that start to be issued, you know, beginning in the 18th century, and and the Baratillo will come under some of those. So, so there's municipal um, records um, in the um, uh, in the, the, the in the municipal archives where they're preserved, which just happens to be right off the Calle Donceles. I spent a lot of time. Um, on that street and in those bookstores, um, and so there's a great deal of 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 material there about the actual day to day operation about the um, you know these records or like you know like so many records that particularly records that deal with like economic uh, uh, institutions and, and phenomenon they're very fragmentary right you might have you know you might have a list of names for one year, of vendors for one year and then not again for twenty. You know, it's not necessarily consistent, but it's something um, that and it's something beyond just royal decrees that ban the market, um, you know, using some of the same language. In the 19th century or starting, you know, in the late 18th century, there's also newspapers uh, in Mexico and, and newspapers mention the Baratillo frequently. And, and you know, sometimes it's, it's these kind of cultural references that the Baratillo, right, this comes from the Spanish word barato or cheap. Right. And, and so it has all of those connotations of everything in society that is cheap, that is lowly. And, and so you find it, you know, references in newspapers that, um, you know, that, that talk about the Baratillo um, either in general terms as just a synonym for for the vulgar or the illegal in Mexican society or Mexico City society or more specific incidents that take place there. Uh, and certainly by the late 19th century, that's more and more true. Obviously, that comes with all the issues of, of newspaper um, of coverage, right? That it can be um, sensationalized and and everything, but it's another source. It's another source that I could use to tell this to the, this story and narrate the history of the Baratillo and its vendors. Yeah, I think your your study is really important be, to study. For example, um, the history of 
commerce, right? We usually thought think about it as as official markets, as uh, you know, the the um, department stores that started to come to uh, appear at the end of the nineteenth century, and and I'm I'm interested in who were the actors um, of these markets? How did they get their their uh, wares? How uh, did they did did they uh, what were their connections to to gather these uh, goods and and sell them for less money? Did they did they steal them or did they have an actual network? <laughs> um, and um, are were they are there um, is there ever is there more women? Than men, or the opposite, uh, are they um, indigenous or are Creole? Uh, you know, what what is their what is their? Um, how can you describe the people that sell uh, that sold at this market, especially throughout the eighteenth and eighteenth and nineteenth century? Yeah, it's a great question. I spent I spent a lot of time trying to answer that question. Um, uh, in inside and outside of the archives, and and I will say, you know, that actually, when I completed the dissertation, you know, I think most people, you know, they they don't generally add it, you know, well, everyone's different, but you know, generally, you know, you don't want to be doing too much new more research when you um, revise a dissertation to a book. But I actually do feel like I, I had a much better answer to this question, although still a very incomplete answer, in the revision in the book than I did in the dissertation, because I was able. Um, through some, some mainly through some Mexican colleagues, um, some scholars that that um, had census data and some other information that they helped me locate in Mexico or shared with me, that I was able to get a little bit closer to answering this question of who who the vendors were. As to the networks, I mean, I can I just get glimpses of it. I mean, about the the reason I, I employ the word shadow economy, and I, I went you know back and forth thinking about informal economy is that the right way to, to to describe this commerce or illicit economies. And the reason I, I chose and went with shadow economy is because I, I, I like the, in many ways, I embraced the, the nebulousness of, of that term and sort of as an inclusive term because the Baratio has kind of the full range of, of legality in terms of what is sold there. Some things are just secondhand goods that are neither legal nor illegal. They're sort of just unregulated. Um, they're, um, they're often not much evidence that these things are being taxed, um, but they are, um, there's not, they're not explicitly illegal. And then there's things that, you know, would do, do kind of conform to our understanding of informal economy is that they're goods that are not themselves illegal, um, but that are being sold outside of legal channels. Um, so in the, eighth, the big thing is in the colonial period, these are um, manufactured goods, including textiles, especially textiles that are sold outside of the guild system. Colonial era, old regime laws, you know, really gave artisan guilds monopolies over their crafts. And they were very um, extensive regulations over um, exactly how garments or, or items could be made and where they could be sold, which is from artisans' own workshops. And so artisanal goods being sold in the Baratio was was technically illegal. So even though there was nothing illegal about a shirt, um, where it was being sold um, or who was selling it, if it wasn't a master artisan, went against uh, the 
the the regulations. Now those regulations disappear in the 19th century. So there's so there's also a kind of um, that's not the same. You know that these this line between legality and illegality is not fixed, right? It changes over time. So as the guilds lose their legal monopolies over their crafts in the 19th century, kind of the advent of liberal legislation, um, you know, that's no longer uh, a, it's no longer prosecuted um, or, 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 you know, um, enforced those, those rules. Um, so, so I think people are getting goods and, you know, it depends on the time and it depends on, on the individual vendor and it depends on the goods. So there's always complaints about um, servants are, and slaves in the colonial period are stealing things from their, um, from their employers or their owners' homes and selling them. That's, you know, something that people say. And there's a little bit of evidence of that, not a ton. Um, you know, there's also just, um, you know, like I mentioned, the artisans are sometimes either selling their own goods in the Baratio against regulations, or they're, they're using middlemen to sell them in the Baratio and working with merchants in ways that were prohibited. Um, you know, it's also where you could just go and sell something you didn't want anymore. Like there's an example I found, you know, this, this sort of uh, a reference to a member of Mexico's Aliencia, it's high court, um, that he's selling a cloak there. Um, that he didn't want anymore. So even elites, right, are kind of used to taking advantage of this to um, to get a little cash for some clothes they didn't want anymore. So I think that items are, are making their way there through various different um, means, both you know, or including legal, legally, illegally, and somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. As as to your question about the the vendors themselves, it's a really interesting question. So the kind of impressionistic documents about the Baratio often talk about it being this, um, a hub, you know, particularly in the, in the colonial period when uh, race is an official category and an, an obsession for some people um, that it's, you know, it's this hub of, of, um, of the, of the castas where the castas as, as, as you know, as mixed race people um, are, are, are gathering there um, and this is, you know, creates all of these, these anxieties. There's this satirical manuscript called the Ordenanzas del Baratio. It was never published, but seems to have been read and, you know, fairly widely about some, in some circles in 18th century Mexico. And it's, it's you know, it's, the Baratio is a, is a dis- synonym for New Spain as this world turned upside down where the castas are in charge and the, um, you know, what they call the, the gachupines, the pejorative for Spaniards, that they're the the oppressed. And so the Baratillo becomes this, this symbol for um, an inverted colonial hierarchy. So that's what people are saying about the Baratillo. But when you actually dig into the demographic information, the limited, admittedly very limited um, demographic information that's able to find in marriage records, you know, other court records where people's race might be identified, um, that most of the vendors in the Baratillo seem to be Spanish. Right, or at least that's how they're identified. Um, at least in you know in the sample of, of documents I was able to to find that it actually seems to be there seems to be a sort of Hispanic bias uh, in the in the Baratio. and it's very male. Um, there's always um, in every list of vendors in the Baratio, There's always or usually at least one woman, um, but it's always a small. It's a minority. Um, it seems to be a very male space um, and a largely in terms of the vendors. A, a Hispanic space. 
And the reason I think that is true, and because that that is different from what we think about street vendoring in general, which we we generally think about as um, a more female occupation and a more indigenous or non-Spanish occupation. Although I don't know that we have too many kind of systematic analyses uh, of that, but that is how we understand it um, in the 18th and 19th centuries. And the reason I think the Baratio is probably different is because when I have, when I'm able to find any kind of demographic information about the vendors that includes any information about their, their training, about their occupation, that many of them are artisans. And they're artisans, they're masters, uh, master artisans or apprentices in, uh, for, in trades that, at least in the colonial period, right, where these things are you know, delineated by ethnicity, um, that, that are very male um, and, and very Spanish. Uh, and so I, I think that's probably why the, the, it seems to be, and certainly more than I expected and more than many of the documents themselves would suggest, much more male and, uh, and more Hispanic in background uh, than, than I was expecting or we might expect given what we think about um, street vending as an occupation. Right. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. So just um, to finish, out of curiosity for today's um, Depito, uh, how, what are the politics within the market? How can, does anyone that has something to sell, just put a manta on the floor and, and, and sell? Or what are, are, are there any um, maybe shadow rules that, one's, that one has to follow to, um, to become a vendor? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, so I was never able to really determine, I never saw any sources that pointed to any kind of internal organization or like leadership exactly in the, in the market. A, a little bit of caveat on that. There, there, are, some, there are certain disputes um, that the vendors will get into with government officials and there will be like rival camps of vendors. Um, and so the, you might have, you know, the, the Ayuntamiento, the municipal government wants to move the market to a different location. And some vendors suggest um, the Plaza de Los Angeles and the others suggest Tepito and they, and they kind of, they disagree with one another. So I have some sense that, you know, there's certainly divisions within the market, um, uh, but never had a clear, I never found an era where there was a clear leader um, that acted as a kind of boss. I think that's possible, um, especially in the, in the 19th century. Um, the, the way that, so my sense is, is, is probably not, you probably couldn't just show up. Um, probably there was some sort of organization or leadership within the market. And then another level of, of oversight by the municipal government. Um, you know, the rent collector, you had to, you know, you had to secure a, a spot. And, um, and so there were different ways that you, you had to do that and you had to pay a fee for that. And, you know, probably there was some sort of tip or bribe that was, uh, that went along with that. Um, and that is largely how, you know, the street markets in Mexico work today, right? They are organized, um, you know, sometimes they are, so like actually organized as, um, you know, formally uh, in, in, in unions and sindicatos. Um, and, 
Uh, you know, they might also, uh, and so the leader uh, may be a, a union leader. It could also, you know, there are other kind of various, like uh, uh, many of them, are, they're actually organized as, um, I believe, as like civil society organizations. Uh, and, and, but then they're also, right, they, they are very much linked to the municipal government, right? And so they're, so that is, you know, there, there is certainly a structure today that sociologists and anthropologists have have studied um, that doesn't show up in the documents really in the period that that I looked at, but we do know right that there are um, that there that there were factions at various times in the market, and that there and that the municipal government is very involved in uh, in the market to varying degrees in terms of rules and regulations, but always to collect rent. Because that's what's, you know, what's so interesting is that the Baratio, you know, I'm accessing the, the larger shadow economy through this, this market because it left a paper trail, because it's a, a single institution. Occasionally, it's, there's a couple Baratios, but usually it's, it's one market that has a kind of consistent paper trail um, that is technically illegal, that has been banned by numerous royal uh, and uh, presidential decrees, administrative decrees, but then at the same time, it is very much legal in that the, the municipal government is regulating it and it is determining, you know, what the rent is there and it is collect, its, its agents are collecting rent from, uh, from, from the vendors. And so, and that's also something that recent scholarship, you know, by anthropologists um, in, uh, of, of markets like the Baratio, you know, in the present day that, you know, it's impossible to tell this story without the government, right? It, it, that's why sort of the in, kind of pushback against as many scholars have the idea of an informal economy because of the suggestion that the government isn't involved. And, and, and that's absolutely not true. I think the government through various different you know, rent collectors and others um, are, are absolutely essential players in the story and the histories of, of these markets. And, it, and it's often the local government because they are the ones for whom these these markets are are really important income streams. Thank you so much, Dr. Konov. Uh, this has been really great. Uh, the book that we have talked about today is the Black Market Capital: Urban Politics and the Shadow Economy of Mexico City, published by University of California Press in two thousand eighteen by Dr. Andrew Konov. Thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Paula, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me.